In this episode of 2000 Books, Adam Grant dispels two very popular and insidious myths about great entrepreneurs. These are myths that stop most entrepreneurs from going after their biggest dreams. So listen on. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vaya. Adam Grant is Wharton Business School's top-rated professor. He has been recognized as one of the world's 25 most influential management thinkers, and he's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Give and Take and Originals. Today, we're talking about originals, how non-conformists move the world. However, the interview is rather unusual because we had some audio issues early on, and when we started, that le- left us really very limited recording time. So we got right down to business. I'm I'm just going to hand over the mic to Adam and let him talk about the two key ideas that I strongly believe every ambitious entrepreneur needs to hear about. So here we go. I used to look at the original people in the world and think that creative geniuses were cut from a different cloth, that they were born with some spark of imagination, that they had a biological immunity to risk, that they were fearless and that they just woke up one morning with eureka moments that led them to great ideas. And I found out that all of those things were wrong, that in fact, the most original people across industries have more bad ideas than their peers. Because the way that you become original is you generate variety. And the best path to variety is sheer volume. Picasso, for example, relatively decent number of masterpieces, but it took him over 1,800 paintings, 1,200 sculptures, 2,800 ceramics, and 12,000 drawings in order to get to that smaller set of great works of art. Einstein transformed physics with two great papers on relativity. How much do we know about his 248 other papers? Edison, 1,093 patents, six or seven that have truly changed the world, and most of them really went nowhere. He designed a talking doll so creepy that it scared not only kids, but adults too. And that was during the same period that he was working on the light bulb. He was trying to mine iron ore using magnets. That failed. He was designing a fruit preservation technique that never took off. He had to try a lot of bad ideas in order to generate a few good ones. Shakespeare. We admire Hamlet, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet. Have you ever heard of Timon of Athens or the Merry Wives of Windsor? Relative duds panned by critics, and yet he worked on those plays around the same period that he was developing his greatest works. The point is that most people believe that there's a trade-off between quantity and quality. That if you want to become a creative genius, you should focus on a few ideas and then refine them to perfection. But that is completely backward. There's a positive relationship between quantity and quality. Classical composers, for example, if you look at the ones who become the greatest, whose compositions get re-recorded the most times, who are rated most positively by experts, who end up getting the most pages in encyclopedia entries, they are not the ones who just churn out a few masterpieces, rather the ones who actually do the most work. 
even the greatest of the greats, Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, had to generate 400, 500, 600 compositions in order to do a relatively small number of masterpieces. One of the hardest parts of being creative is what Ira Glass calls the gap. You get into creative work because you have great taste and you have a vision of doing something totally original. But then the work that you're able to produce when you start is terrible. And there's a huge gap between your vision and the reality that you're able to generate. Most people give up at that point. They say, look, you know, at first this was interesting. Now it's become tricky. I look at my finished product and I realize it's crap. And pretty soon I make the leap to I'm crap. But what distinguishes creative geniuses in those moments is that they persist instead of quitting. They say, I've got to keep working at this until I master the skill and I'm able to close the gap between my taste and my skill. That can take years. It can take decades. It can take many, many repeated rounds of effort. But it's not primarily talent that determines which people make it. It's the deliberate practice to continue trying new ideas, to continue refining your taste, to get feedback from lots of other people and ultimately arrive at something that is much better than you originally were capable of. Psychologist Dean Simonson has studied creative geniuses throughout history, and he finds that on average, they're not better than their peers. They just produce more work. To quote Simonson, the odds of producing an influential or successful idea are a positive function of the total number of ideas generated. That's true across people. If you compare playwrights, musicians, inventors, the ones who do the most important novel work are the ones who just do the most work. But it's also even true within careers. So when Simonson studied Thomas Edison's career, the periods where he generated more ideas were also the windows where he generated the greatest ideas. So in the five-year time where he churned out over 100 patents, he had a much better shot at pioneering the light bulb than in the five-year windows where he only had 10 or 20 patents. And the more ideas Edison generated, the more bad ideas he produced, but also the better his chances of stumbling on something that was truly different and better than what came before. So let's say you actually generate a lot of ideas and you come up with a good one. What do you do next to become original? Well, most people believe they need to get the first mover advantage. That if somebody has beat you to market, you are just completely out of luck. If you can be the first out of the gate in bringing out a new product, new technology, a new service, then you can learn faster, you can gain competitive advantage, you can build brand loyalty, you can ultimately create a monopoly. And that makes it harder and harder for your competitors to enter. Now, this is a compelling idea, the first mover advantage advantage. There's only one tiny problem. It's not real. The first mover advantage is mostly a myth. There's a ton of evidence suggesting that more often first movers are at a disadvantage, not an advantage. One of my favorite studies by marketing researchers Golder and Tellis, they look at companies that are either pioneers who were the first movers in a market, or they were improvers who came into the market later and tried to make the product or service better. And this is across over 500 product categories. What they see is that the first movers on average had a 47% failure rate compared to only an 8% failure rate for the improvers. And if you take that evidence seriously, you start to think, well, wait a minute, there is a liability of being new. Why is that? 
Well, the first problem with being a first mover is that it's easier to, to improve on someone else's idea than it is to create a market from scratch. So the first movers spend all their time getting customers used to a new idea, and then they create the opportunity for somebody else to tinker with that idea, make it better, and then jump in and capture the market. The second problem is that if you're the first mover, you often rush into the domain before you're fully ready and you don't have the complete opportunity to really put your ideas together and make them sing. And then the third problem is if you're a first mover, one of the mistakes that you consistently make is that you tend to take unnecessary risks, that you decide that <laughs> that done is better than right and that puts you ultimately behind. So look at examples, right? Facebook was not the first in social media. MySpace and Friendster got people used to the idea of putting their profiles online. And then Facebook came up with a better way to make identity real on the internet. Search. Google wasn't first. In fact, there was an entire generation of search engines before they came in. If you don't know what search engine you use, you should probably ask Jeeves. <laughs> but Google had a chance to follow Lycos, AltaVista, Yahoo, and then came up with a completely different way of generating a search engine. We see this across industries. If you look at automotive industry, for example, if you look at video games, it's often the leader entrants who are able to make things better. Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, says it's not about being the first to move, it's about being the first to scale. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you should just avoid being the first mover. Rather, what I'm saying is that if you have an idea, there's no reason to rush to be first. To be original, you just need to be different and better. You can, you can see clearly that the original people in the world are not that different from the rest of us. They have bad ideas. Sometimes they're slow to act and they're way behind the times. And in fact, original people are pretty ordinary when you look at them. They hate taking risks on average. They procrastinate constantly. And they feel the same doubt and fear that the rest of us do. They just choose to act anyway. That's the real difference between creative geniuses and their peers is, look, we all have ideas. The question is, what are you going to do with those ideas? So if you want to create new ideas, if you want to champion change in the world, the place to start is to take the initiative to make your vision a reality. So as you can see from what Adam was talking about, great entrepreneurs are made, not born. They're not born with a special creative genius or talent. They just work harder. They keep on trying. They persist instead of quitting. And here's the paradox. Those who ultimately succeed fail far more often than those who fail. Now let me repeat that. Those who ultimately succeed fail far more often than those who fail. Basically, the people who succeeded keep on trying and trying even in the face of failures, setbacks, adversities, difficulties. They have mental toughness. They have grit. They, they are people who are undefeated by temporary obstacles. And that's what allows them to succeed. And here's the key. Every great thinker, entrepreneur, philosopher, researcher, athlete has come to the same conclusion that Adam is talking about, that mental toughness, persistence, grit is the single biggest indicator and predictor of success in every walk of life. And that is why we here created the 2X Mental Toughness video course. In this course, we summarize 40 of the greatest books on the topic of building mental toughness. You get daily videos and action items on the most important ideas from these books for 90 days every single day 
And by the time you're done, you will have a complete tool set of over 90 great ideas to handle life's toughest challenges and to keep on going. Now you will have access to over 10 plus hours of video content in this course. And also you get access to clickable mind maps of each of these books so that you can quickly zoom in and zoom out of the entire book or any idea that you want to uh, dig into. The course goes live on August 15, but you can sign up as an early adopter today and get a huge discount. The course will be on sale for $99 on August 15, but right now as an early adopter, you can get it for a 50% discount at only $49. Uh, you can check out the course at 2000books.com slash tough. That's T-O-U-G-H, tough. Well, until next time, my friends, go out and live a courageous life.